exam. Good morning and Merry Christmas to you. We're delighted that you are with us today as we worship the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ every Sunday. What a unique Sunday this is. Every Sunday, believers all around the world gather to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, a unique opportunity to celebrate the incarnation of Christ, as well as the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which every Sunday is Easter Sunday for believers. We've been on a journey over the course of the last few weeks, reflecting together on the incarnation of Christ. We've reflected together over the truth that the incarnation reveals to us Christ's deity. In other words, the incarnation shows us that Jesus is God. We've reflected together on the truth that the incarnation reveals to us Jesus' humanity. He is 100% God. Last night, yesterday evening, we reflected together on the truth that the incarnation reveals to us Jesus as one who is worthy to be worshipped. And this morning, I'd like to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. As we reflect together on this eternal truth, Jesus' incarnation reveals to us that He is our substitute for our sin. The incarnation reveals to us Jesus as our substitute for our sins. This narrative in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, which we'll give ourselves attention to this morning, actually begins in a new section in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. I'd like to take just a time out for a quick moment. It's a little unfortunate that we have these verse divisions here. Chapter 5, in some ways, really needs to start with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, flowing down into chapter 5, is a, it begins the second large section in the book of Hebrews. And here, the author is going to make a point about Jesus' priestly role. Notice how the author begins this conversation on Jesus' priestly role in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. Since what? If we go all the way back to the very beginning of the narrative of the book of Hebrews, up until this point, the author has been comparing Jesus to a number of things and showing that Jesus is superior to all of those things. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. Jesus is superior to Aaron. He's superior to any other high priest that has come before him. And so the writer, having proven his case of the superiority of Christ, reminds us that we have this high priest. And what has this high priest done for us? He weds together 
the combination of this high priest who is simultaneously 100% God and 100% man. Who is this high priest? He is one, the writer of Hebrews says, who has passed through the heavens. He is God. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every regard, in every respect, has been tempted, yet without sin. Do you see that combining of the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ? He has passed through the heavens. He is the Son of God. He is Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. Yet, he's also fully, completely, totally man. Jesus, in his function as high priest, is one just like you and me in every way. Tempted, but without sin. Notice verse 16. Therefore, in light of who Jesus is, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Jesus is our superior high priest. And then notice what happens here in verse 5. Look in your English Bibles. You can see the conjunction there. For uh, the writer of Hebrews now is going to ground what he has just said about the high priestly role of Jesus. He's going to ground it in this truth. There are two things that were required for one to be counted as a high priest. If we go all the way back to Exodus and Leviticus, when we see the revelation of who the high priest is to be and what he should do, we see two overarching qualifications for one to serve in the position of high priest. And both of these qualifications, the writer of Hebrews is now going to mention for us in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Number one, a high priest has to be one who has the ability to sympathize with those whom he would represent. A high priest had to be one who would sympathize with those whom he would represent. And secondly, this text of Scripture reminds us that a high priest had to be appointed by God. And what the author of Hebrews is showing us in chapter 5 Verses 1 through 10, Jesus meets those qualifications. Jesus meets God's qualifications to serve in the office of high priest. So notice what he does in verses 1 through 4. He reflects on these qualifications that have been given to us by the text of Scripture, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for what? Sins. 
He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness, with moral weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Do you see the combination of these two qualifications? A high priest must be one who is able to empathize with those whom he would represent. This is the first point made in these first few verses. And then verse 4, he's one that is appointed by God. Notice in verse 1, the author uses two words, both of which are placed in the passive voice. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, some of you are English teachers out here, Miss Morgan. Some of you are teachers or you've had English or you're, you're teaching your children English at home. When a verb is placed in the passive tense, what does that tell us about the action of that verb? The action of that verb is not doing something that would be active. In the passive, it is receiving. So notice back to your text again. For every high priest chosen and every high priest appointed. See, friends, the function and role of the high priest was not something that the high priest himself woke up one day and said, well, I believe today that I will choose myself and appoint myself to serve in a position. No. Notice what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The one who serves in the office of high priest, he is one that has been chosen by whom? By God. Appointed by whom? God. For what purpose? To act on behalf of men in relation to God. The priestly function is different from the prophetic function. The prophet represented God to the people. The prophet spoke on behalf of God, if you will, to the people. The priest was there to represent the people before God. And here in this text, the writer of Hebrews tells us that this priestly function is one that has been chosen, ordained by God, and serves with a very specific purpose on behalf of men in relation to God. In the Old Testament, how were, how were the people of the nation of Israel to relate to God? Did they have direct access to God? No. Could they come directly before God? No. What did they need? <laughs> a priest. Thank you, buddy. A priest. They needed a priest. They needed a priest to represent them before God. 
And this is what the priest would do. And the high priest, on that one day in which the sins of the nation of Israel were atoned for, for a split second, the high priest would enter into the holy holies, holy of holies, and make that sacrifice on behalf of the nation of Israel and on behalf of himself, thus appeasing the wrath of God for sins for a moment. He represented on behalf of men in relationship to God to do what? Offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. See, friends, the narrative of the text of Scripture is a narrative that reminds you and me that we are all sinners. And there is nothing that you or I can do about our own sin ourselves. There's no atonement that you can make. There's no correct plea or saying or statement There's no right hymn that you could sing. There's no right prayer that you could recite that could ever appease God's wrath toward your sin and my sin. It has been from the beginning that something outside of ourselves was demanded and needed to make atonement for sin. The high priest, the context of the Old Testament, would make that sacrifice on behalf of the people. Why? Verse 2. He's one that empathizes with those whom he would represent. He was to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Why? Because he himself was ignorant and wayward. That is the high priest of the Old Testament because he himself was not one free of moral weakness, moral guilt before God. Was the high priest in the Old Testament a sinner just like the rest of the nation of Israel? Yes. But he was to serve as one who is gentle and kind. He was one that was to serve with the overwhelming awareness that he too was a sinner in need of God's forgiveness. This is what it meant to serve as a high priest. By the way, how do you like the designation of your life here? Ignorant and wayward. If that doesn't make you feel warm on Christmas morning, I don't know what will. See, friends, this is a designation of your life and my life apart from Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you do not have a right relationship with Christ, if you are here today and your life has never been redeemed by Christ, then this is a designation of your life. You're wayward. You are apart from God. And yet God has sent His Son Jesus 
to serve as a high priest so that your ignorance and your waywardness might be forgiven, so that you and I might have a right relationship with God. Since he himself is beset with weakness, moral weakness, of course, this is a reference going all the way back to the Old Testament. Who was the first high priest? Aaron. Does Aaron serve with perfection? Does Aaron serve with the absence of moral weakness? If you're prone to think he does, might I suggest you go to Exodus chapter 32 and read how the high priest himself leads his people in idolatry. Aaron himself, the first high priest, wasn't free from moral weakness. Why? Because Aaron was a man just like you and me. Aaron was a man who had moral weakness and sin before God. And so because of this, verse 3 tells us, he's obligated because of his own sin and the sins of the people. The high priest is now obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sin, just as he does for those of the people. On that day, on the Day of Atonement, he wasn't just making sacrifice for all of those people out there. He was also making sacrifice for that one in there, inside of the Holy of Holies himself. Why? He was a sinner. But notice what verse 4 does for us. Verse 4 mentions for us that second requirement of a high priest, one who must be appointed by God. And no one takes this honor for himself. But only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Are we all on the same page with the same understanding as to what the requirements of a high priest was? One who had to be able to empathize with people, the people that he would represent before God, and one who was appointed by God. So it raises a question in our minds. Go back to chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus. Does Jesus meet Scripture's qualifications to serve in the office of high priest? Let's see what Scripture says. Chapter 5, verse 5. Most of your English Bibles begins, so. We might translate that little word, in this way also. In this way also, Christ. In what way? In these two requirements. One who must be able to empathize with the people whom he would represent before God and one who is to be appointed by God, the author tells us, in this same way, Jesus. Does Jesus meet those two qualifications? Chapter 5, verse 5, answers that question with a resounding yes. 
In this same way, Jesus did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now notice what happens in chapter five, verses five through 10. The writer is now going to flip the two requirements. What were the two requirements? One who empathizes with the people whom he would represent before God, and one who was appointed by God. Now notice how the writer of Hebrews begins this reflection on Jesus' high, priest, high priesthood. He, swips, he swaps them. What does he mention first? The fact that Jesus is appointed by God in case there were any questions, in case there was any doubt in anyone's mind as to how Jesus or who Jesus was, the author begins by immediately affirming Jesus as a high priest, and the first thing he, he points to is that Jesus was appointed as a high priest by God himself, and he does so by reaching way back to Psalm chapter two and proving his case by scripture. Scripture, the writer of Hebrews says, is the one who grants to Jesus the divine appointment in serving in the office of high priest. This is the second time the writer of Hebrews will reach back to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and pull this verse to authenticate the ministry of Christ. He does it first in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, he's using this text of Scripture, by the way, as he does throughout Hebrews. He's using Psalm chapter 2 to show Jesus' superiority in what way? What proves Jesus' superiority? Jesus' resurrection. The author is saying to us, by virtue of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he proves his appointment by God. Now don't misunderstand what the author is saying. The author is not saying that Jesus had to do a certain number of things to prove to the Father that indeed he was able to function in the role of high priest such that after Jesus finally, totally, the apex of Jesus' proving he was God is the resurrection, now the Father looks down on Jesus and says, well done, son. You've proven to me you have it. You are now my son. No. Jesus doesn't have to do anything to receive the title of son. Jesus receives the title of son because he is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. The author is using Hebrews 
sorry, Psalm chapter two, verse seven, is pointing us toward that moment of Jesus's resurrection in which he was declared to be the son. Now designation son points us to what truth of Jesus? Son is a earthly title, if you will. It's a familial title. It's a reference to Jesus's deity. The author here is mentioning Jesus's deity. He's decla- uh, sorry, his, his um, humanity is declared to be a son. And then notice what he does with verse 6 as he mentions Psalm 110 verse 4. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is appointed priest. Jesus is declared a son. Jesus is that one who will empathize with his creation. Jesus is that one. As we read just a few moments ago in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, 15, and 16, who will sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus is that one from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. For what purpose? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He uses the text of Scripture to prove to us Jesus's appointment, Jesus's function. Jesus is declared the son. Jesus is appointed the priest. And look at verse seven. In the days of his flesh. The days of his flesh begins when, friend? In Matthew chapter two. Luke chapter 2, in the days of his flesh, begins at that moment in which we celebrate today, Jesus' incarnation. See, friends, Jesus is not able to function in the office of high priest and thus make substitute for your sin and for my sin if it were not for this moment. We don't get to Jesus as substitute without Jesus as a baby lying in a manger. We don't get to Jesus as the one who would make atonement and die a a sinner's death on a cross without Jesus as an infant. A baby completely dependent on his mother, Mary, and his father, Joseph, without the incarnation. This function of Jesus as as high priest begins with that narrative, with that story, with this moment. A baby in a manger. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, what does he do? He offers up prayers and and supplications. This is what Jesus does on behalf of his people. He 
He empathizes with his people. He serves his people. He represents his people before the Father. He prays to the Father, but this reference of Jesus offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears brings us to what moment in Jesus' life? Can you hear the prayers of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What were those prayers like? Jesus knows exactly what's taking place that Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice that the use of the language in this text of Scripture, how did Jesus pray? With loud cries and tears. Why? Because the greatest way that Jesus would represent people before God would be in that moment when he took the sins of the people upon himself. The greatest way that Jesus empathizes with you and with me The greatest way that Jesus represents you and me before the Father is in that moment of sacrifice. Hear the language of this text of Scripture? Jesus offered up. What does this terminology of offering up conjure in our minds? Sacrifice. Jesus offers up prayers And supplications, how? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. This moment takes us back to that Garden of Gethsemane moment. This word reverence at the end of verse 6 is in a family of words that can also be translated Fear. So let's give it that translation for just a moment. And he was heard because of his fear. Was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood because he was afraid, because he knew some intense moment was about to take place? but he really didn't know what was about to happen? Was Jesus afraid? Because in a few moments, some guards were going to be traping in and arrest him, so Jesus was saying, oh no. What shall I do? They're going to get me finally now. No. What was Jesus' fear? What was the pain of the cross? While the pain of the cross for sure is imaged in a crown of thorns, and while for sure the pain of the cross is imaged through the stabbing of his spear 
in the side of Jesus. All of those images of pain pale in light of the pain of the sinless Son of God who took upon your sin and my sin. For the Scripture says, He who knew no sin became sin. The greatest fear in the life of Jesus was this sinless Son of God who would have to take upon Himself even though he was completely, totally perfect, even though he himself had no moral guilt before the Father, he was going to have to become guilty before the Father because of your sin and my sin. And in that moment, Jesus becomes my substitute and your substitute. I'd like to take a time out for just a few moments and make a quick plea to you as to why Luke is the author of Hebrews. Luke uses this word fear or reverence some 13 times in Hebrews, Luke, and Acts. Anybody want to guess how many times Paul uses this word? Zero. Anybody want to guess how many times the use of Psalm 2 verse 7 is used in Hebrews, Luke, and Acts? And juxtapose that against how many times the apostle Paul uses it. My timeout's over. Luke wrote Hebrews, not Paul. Verse 8. Sorry, let me come back to verse 7. Whether we understand this word to be a, a word of reverence or a word of fear, even if reverence, and he was heard because of his Reverence. It all points back to Jesus' humanity. Why look at verse 8? Although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned reverence. He learned to fear the Father. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus grew in what? Stature in wisdom, and in favor with God and man. It's a reference back to Jesus' humanity. Like, like you, like me, Jesus had to grow. Did Jesus face hunger like we do? Yes. Did Jesus have to learn at the carpentry house of Joseph how to swing a hammer? Yes. It's a reference to Jesus' humanity. Although he was a son, he learned obedience how? Through what he suffered. 
and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designed by God, here it is, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Friends, Jesus proves his high priestly role by sacrificing on my behalf and on your behalf. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect. How? Through suffering. Jesus, through his incarnation, reveals to you and me he is our substitute. Jesus has accomplished what you and I could not accomplish. And he, and he alone, is our source of eternal salvation. But for this source of eternal salvation, there is a requirement. Jesus, the source of salvation, applied to whom? Only those who obey. Jesus, in his atonement, has made atonement for the sins of the world, unlimited in that sense, but limited to only those who, by faith, would trust in Jesus as high priest, as substitute. Friend, the greatest way for you to join in this Christmas season in celebrating the incarnation of Jesus as God's Son is for you to walk in obedience. It's for you to obey. It's for you to believe. And in doing so, receive this perfect gift, this source of what type of salvation? Eternal. See, friends, Jesus doesn't just redeem our lives in this present, though he does. Jesus doesn't just change your life in this moment, though he does. Jesus changes your life and my life for an eternity. This is the true meaning. This is the true gift of Christmas. Have you trusted in God's eternal salvation? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you believed in Christ? 
For verse 10, Christ is our high priest. There is only one who can make atonement. Final, complete atonement for your sin and for my sin. And Jesus, as high priest, doesn't have to return to the Holy of Holies once a year to make that atonement for sin. No, Jesus made that atonement once and for all on the cross of Christ. Jesus made that atonement for all, forever, when he gave his life on Calvary's cross. He is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You'll have to come back for another sermon for us to spend the entirety of that fleshing out who this Melchizedek figure is. But let's take a quick trip down the road of understanding who he is. We go all the way back to the Old Testament. The first time we see Melchizedek figure, who made a tithe to him? Abraham. So we understand from that narrative that whoever Melchizedek is, he was one of great honor and one of great worth. He was worthy of receiving this this tithe. But notice from here in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 10, this same Melchizedek, the one worthy to receive the tithe, is one whom Jesus himself follows in the order of high priest. Thus, Jesus is a high priest greater than Aaron. This is the point of the mention of Melchizedek in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is mine and your great high priest. And that high priestly function begins with the narrative of his birth and concludes with his coming again. Jesus is coming again to receive into himself those who have walked in obedience, those who have professed faith in Christ, and those will live for an eternity with him as he functions daily as our high priest. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for this moment of celebrating Jesus as high priest. We thank you that you, Jesus, and you alone are the one who make intercession on our behalf. That you, Jesus, and you alone have been appointed to this role by the Father, and you perfectly carried out that role so that you might offer to us eternal salvation. Would you take a moment where you're seated, friend, and reflect on this Jesus? Is Jesus serving as your high priest? The only way for Jesus to serve and function as as your high priest is for you to believe, for you to trust, for you to obey. Have you trusted in Christ?
If not, the scripture says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved at this moment. Your life can be redeemed. And Jesus can be your high priest. For those of us who do believe, this narrative calls you and me to be like this high priest. To be one who walks in obedience to God. Believer, are you intentionally, faithfully obeying God? Is your obedience to God today better than it was yesterday? This text calls us to be like Jesus and obey. In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing in Christ alone. Friend, as we sing, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. As we sing, please feel free to come to one of us. We'd be glad to share with you how you can trust in Christ. But you don't have to come forward and speak to one of us. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you, for there are plenty of people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Secondly, perhaps you'd like for us to pray with you that your obedience might be like the obedience of Christ, that you would image the obedience of Christ. We would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying for you. And thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. God, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?